Now, as we begin this morning to consider Genesis chapter 42, I think that surely the first thing that you and I notice in this chapter of Scripture is the change of focus, is it? Uh, the switch in direction that we have in this chapter. If you've been at St. Peter's uh, over the last number of weeks and months for this sermon series, uh, you have surely noticed that all of our attention really has been uh, zeroed in on the person of Joseph. Isn't that right? That's what we've been thinking about over the last few months. We have thought about his descent into prison slavery. Then we have seen something of his ascent to this great and prominent position of Egypt. Do you notice that as we come into Genesis chapter 42, that that changes a a little bit? As we sit in front of Genesis 42, the curtain falls. There's a pause. The curtain rises again. There has clearly been a set change. And who is it that is on stage in front of us? But this time, really, it is Joseph's siblings. Now, do you notice that in the story? That there is this switch of attention from Joseph. Now we behold, now we focus in on his brothers. (laughs) Now, if I say to you, a criminal gang... I would be really interested to know what you think about what what springs to mind, what's evoked in your imagination. Maybe it's one of those uh, motorbike gangs that you used to get in cheesy American 80s films, you know, the stereotypical criminal gang on their Harleys, maybe it's that. Maybe you think about a mafia crew, do you, you know, preparing to do their next heist, something like that. No matter what we conceive in our heads, they are, they're not as wicked as these men that are before us in this chapter. Are they? Are they? You, you think about it. What have we thought about before? You've got Reuben. Reuben, who has slept with his father's wife. You have got Judah, who has fathered a child with his daughter-in-law. You have got Simeon and Levi, who are so aggressive and so violent that they have murdered scores of people. And you've got all of this motorbike gang, who have been willing to sell one of their siblings just to get a few quid. And so isn't it, friends, interesting to think about how these brothers are portrayed as the Bible goes on? Isn't that interesting? To think about how God honours this group of men later in the Bible. Have you ever thought about that? Think about Judah. He's so honoured that he gives name to part of the promised land, Israel and Judah. What? You've got all of these men who who give name to the 12 tribes of the people of God. These men, men like this. And then you think about the end of scripture. And it doesn't blow your mind for a moment. Think about it. That in the last reckoning of things, when the holy city, the new Jerusalem is coming down from the skies, whose names are engraved on the very heavenly gates themselves. Whose names? These guys. These 
guys' names are up in lights in the last day, clearly something happens. Like clearly something has had to have occur for God to so honor men like this. Well, all of that takes us now to Genesis chapter 42, doesn't it? Because what do we see here? We see here, let me see, the beginnings of change. So it is just, Christian friends, the beginnings. But it is the beginning, nonetheless, of change. So here we see God act to begin to, to start to awaken the conscience of these men. And isn't that important? Come on, for us as Christians in St. Peter's this morning, because you, like me, were sinners, and our sin, your sin, is so complicated. Isn't it? Our sin is so complex. And if we're honest about it, sometimes our sin, we just forget about it, the sin of our past. And it goes unaddressed. Some of it goes unconfessed if we're frank and brutally honest with ourselves. So do we not need to wrestle with this? Do we not need to pay attention to how it is that God acts to awaken conscience? Why? So that right now, today, you and I might ask, is that what God is doing in my heart just now? Could it be that God is at work to awaken my conscience that I might today repent of my sin? So let me spell it out once again. We see here God, ways that God awakens the conscience or brings people to a conviction of sin. You with me? Okay. What we're going to see as we look at these ways that God awakens conscience, what we're going to do is we're going to try and furnish each of these ways with a further biblical example. So we'll look elsewhere in the Bible to each of these ways that God works to awaken our conscience this morning. So if you've got the Bible in front of you, that will, of course, help. If you don't, if you're visiting, if you don't have a Bible on your phone or a copy of Bible, fret not. We will try and put up some uh, verses and point to them as we go along. The first thing, though, that we need to get our teeth into, our heads around, is this. To waken our conscience, God sometimes uses a crisis So to waken our conscience to our sin, sometimes our God uses a crisis in our lives. Okay. Right, so some of you, for for good reasons, were not here in the church last week. You missed a lot. There was a lot going on in the service uh, last Sunday. But for whatever reason, some were not uh, at church. So maybe we just need to establish what we're dealing with, where, where, where we're at. So we know, don't we, that Joseph had interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, right? It was the king's dreams. And this led to Joseph being given this incredible position of authority and prominence in the land of Egypt. Now, why? What was the role? Do you remember? What what is his task? He had to give out grain because there was, of course, we can remember this, can't we? There was a famine. That's what I want you to think. The fact there was a famine in the land. Now, I'm sure you would agree with us. I hope you'd agree with us anyway, that I think it's really difficult for us, 21st century Dundee, to really get our heads around a famine. It is, isn't it? I mean, it just seems a little bit remote to most of us, I would imagine. Personally, I rarely get hungry. You know, maybe there's, like you, there's the 
first pang of hunger. But what happens? We just reach for the monster munch, if that happens, or, we, or the cheese, or the chocolate, or, or the idea of a famine and not being able to do something like this seems remote. And what we have to appreciate here this morning is this was no ordinary famine, was it? You remember that phrase from the Bible reading last week, don't you? That this was so severe in the land that they couldn't even remember what it was like to have food. And this famine was incredibly far-reaching. Do we pick that up in this chapter? Far re- Why? Because when Jacob way up north in in Canaan, when he hears, wait a minute, there's food, there's grain to be had down in Egypt. What does he do? He's sending people immediately down. So there there is famine, there is famine. Now, what I would ask you to do just for a moment, please, is to try and put yourself in the brother's shoes. Now, what does that famine mean for them? Can you do that with me? Can you think about it? Like before the famine, what was their life like? They were tending the sheep and they were enjoying the plenty in the land, these brothers. Then what happens? Then famine strikes and all of a sudden things change. Like they have to drop everything. They have to leave all of their loved ones and they have to make this treacherous, dangerous journey. But this is my point to where? What was that their dad said to them? To Egypt. Now imagine how that would have been received by the brothers. Can you imagine them looking at each other? Think, what? We've got where? Egypt? Was that not the place? All those years ago that that merchants, those merchants, those, those traders were taking Joseph? No wonder, if you look at verse 1, you'll see that they procrastinate. Do you notice? Do you, do you see it? No wonder Jacob has to give them a row and says, What are you doing? Still standing there. Get on your bike. Now, as we look at these things, as we consider them, is there not, if you're a Christian in here, is there not a vital lesson that you and I have to learn here? That though it is not, listen to me, though it is not always the case, sometimes God does use a crisis to turn us to face our sin. Though it's not always the case, sometimes God does disturb the peace of our lives and he does it to awaken our conscience. Indeed, how did I start this sermon? I promised you that we would go to other examples in the Bible. Where do we see another example of this? But the prodigal son. I mean, do you not see the parallel there? A crisis awakening his conscience? I mean, the prodigal son, he's having a great time. And he's living this high life. He's enjoying enjoying his best life now as the prodigal son. And then there is this crisis. And what does it make him do? It makes him search his soul. Ultimately, this crisis makes him repent and return to his father. And so I have to ask you, all of you, to consider, in recent times, has God turned your life upside down? Has he? 
Well, no. (laughs) That is not always about our sin. But surely when a crisis does hit us, we have to wonder, we have to ask whether God has given us this crisis to stir us, to make us reflect on our rebellion, this crisis to awaken our conscience that we might repent. And even in a, even in a crisis, begin again to taste the sweetness of his grace. So God sometimes to awaken us uses a crisis. A second thing I want you to see here to awaken our conscience, God sometimes speaks severely to us. Has everyone got it? So sometimes to awaken our conscience to our sin, God sometimes speaks severely uh, to us. Now, as we move quite quickly through this chapter, we come now to what is just a great, lovely uh, biblical scene. It's a brilliant scene. What is it? It's a scene where, now let's be careful about it, 10 brothers. Everyone pick up on that? Not 11? Did you notice that Jacob, clearly very suspicious of his sons, what does he do? He, he, he holds Benjamin back and he keeps Benjamin with him. So what is the scene that you picture with me just now? You have got 10 of these brothers, right? And they travel and they arrive in Egypt. And what do they do? They fall prostrate before Joseph. They fall before their, their long-lost sibling. Isn't that a great scene? You with me? What a scene it is. A lovely scene. Now, I think the first thing that we have to deal with here is the fact that they do not recognize their brother. So can I ask you, do you find that a little bit difficult to believe? The fact that they don't quite recognize Joseph. Do you you find that quite difficult? I don't think you should. 20 years have passed. (laughs) And instead of Joseph being this young bloke with a big beard... So we'd have been expected Semitic people at the time. What does he look like? So he is shaved head, cleanly shaven, headpiece covered in all of these cosmetics that would have been expected of Egyptian aristocracy. It's very different. Let's face it. He's speaking through an interpreter as well. Of course, they do not recognize him. But actually, more important... It's to notice how Joseph deals with his brother. So I, again, I'm going to stop and, and put this to you. You're picturing the scene. They fall down before him. How would you expect Joseph to deal with his brothers? Come on, what, what would you expect him to do? I mean, if you're anything like me, I, I suppose you expect him to go one way or the other here, don't you? You expect him either to have them put to death because of what they've done to him in the past, or maybe you're expecting him just to reveal his identity. It's me! And to go and sort of embrace them. Isn't it interesting to see that he does neither of those things? There's a middle ground here. In fact, I want you to see it in verse 7. If we could put verse 7 up and wrestle with this. Look what he does. So he he treats them as strangers. Now, what you need to see as being emphasized here What's emphasized in the text, because it comes back to it later on, is the fact that he spoke roughly to them. So that's emphasized. He spoke harshly to them. 
And then, do you notice he accuses them three times of being spies? Do you see? Now, I reckon we could probably spend the rest of our time just thinking about that accusation. Uh, Couldn't we? But I I really, spies. I don't think we need to. If we put up verse 9, you'll probably have noticed already that the accusation of being spies is tied to his dreams. Now, most of you in the room were here at the very start of the sermon series, were you? It's not going back all that long, I hope. It doesn't feel like that, perhaps. But we, go, but we can remember from that what Joseph's dreams were, can't we? Even if we weren't here, we can remember it from childhood, probably most of us. Do you remember he had dreams about his brothers and the grain falling down, you know, the people bowing and, the, you know, the, the cosmic bodies bowing. We remember it. Yes, but do you remember how exact it was? Those dreams spell out, it wasn't 10, it was 11 of the brothers that would bow. And who else? And his dad, his parents. So do you see what's happening in this accusation of being spies? I think it's very strategic. So I think there is the beginnings here of a plan from Joseph to ensure, not just these 10, there's a plan here, the beginnings of a plan to ensure that all of them all of Benjamin comes and the rest of the family come down and bow to him. So I don't think we need to spend all of our time on this accusation. Instead, what I want to ask you to do is what I asked you to do a moment ago and to slip your feet into the size nine sandals of these brothers because they are bowing. They're bowing and they're hearing this from, from Joseph. In fact, can I, can, I, can I show you exactly? I'll tell you what I want you to notice. Look at verses 11 to 13. Hear this. I want you to notice that the severity of Joseph's words, this accusation, the severity, the roughness, it forces these brothers to face their sin. Please tell me you see that. It forces them to see the sin of their character. It forces them, the way he speaks to them roughly forces them to see the sin of their own crime. Look at verse 11. So Joseph says, you are spies. But how do they respond to this? This accusation is an accusation that they are lying. So these brothers, they cry out, no, we are honest men. (laughs) And you want to laugh, don't you? If you've been here for this sermon series, they're saying, we are honest men. You're like, are you kidding me? I mean, you've lived for decades in deceit. You've told your dad, you've told your dad that your brother was killed by wild beasts. But this accusation has them having to say, um, we're, we're honest. And then verse 13. Look at verse 13. Joseph saying, you are spies. And what are they forced to do? They're forced to give their backstory. Do you notice it? No, we, are, we were actually 10 of 12 brothers. And then they have to say, one who was lost. And I doubt very much. I doubt that they had spoken of that for years and years and years and years. Do you see the accusation? Like the, the severity of the way that Joseph speaks to his brothers, it forces them to face who they are, what they've done, and it forces them to face that head on. And again, I want to say to you, and I want you to grasp it, this right here 
This is how God sometimes works with his people. That sometimes, Christian friend, God speaks severely to his children in order to awaken their conscience to their sin. Where do we go for an example of that? We go to the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians. Do you remember what Paul did? Paul writes this harsh letter to the Corinthians, doesn't he? And it grieves the Corinthians. But what do we learn in 2 Corinthians 7? That this harshness, this grieving, it made them repent. And so I do want to ask you, Christian friend, is this what is happening in your life at present? So recently, as you've been reading your Bible, tell me you've been reading your Bible. But as you've been reading your Bible, and as you hear the preaching of the gospel, morning and evening, and you face the providence of God in your life, has it seemed severe? Well, could it be that that is happening in order to push you to reflection, in order to awaken your conscience, that you might repent and taste the sweetness of God's forgiveness the sweetness of his grace. So God uses a crisis sometimes to awaken us. He speaks severely to us. The third thing, God awakens us sometimes by giving us time for reflection. Time for reflection. Um, I ask you this all the time, and I will ask you again, no doubt. But are you with me this morning? Are you with me? The reason I ask, I ask it all the time, But I ask because this is complicated, isn't it? This is not an easy portion of scripture, Genesis chapter 42. Easy for us to be waylaid, I think, here. You're with me. You are with me, aren't you? Yes? One or two nods of the head. Okay, good. That's an encouraging nod. You're with me. We've got Joseph's brothers on their back foot. Isn't that right? They've been accused. They've been dealt with severely and they're trying to clear their name. At this point, what happens is that Joseph unveils a test. But I'll just speak to the students and, and some of the younger people. Don't panic, you know. Like I know that you're going through exams, a lot of you at this point, or near about at this point. So when I say Joseph unveils a test, don't get a shiver down your spine. It is obviously not that sort of a test. Joseph here gives opportunity for the brothers to prove that they have changed. He gives them an opportunity to prove themselves. Now, I think, yes, it is interesting to notice how this test changes. Did you pick up on that as Will read this portion of scripture? So it changes. So in verse 16, what's his initial thought? Verse 16, he thinks he's going to keep all of the brothers in Egypt with him, bar one. And he's going to send one brother up north to Canaan in order to get Benjamin. Everyone with me? So keep all the brothers, bar one. That's verse 16. Verse 19, so he's reflected on that. He changes it. Verse 19, you've got a new plan. So he keeps one brother, not all of them, one, Simeon. And he sends 
all of the rest of the brothers up to Canaan. Do you see how the plan shifts and the plan changes? That's fine, that's interesting. What I really want you to notice is what happens smack bang in between those two things. If we put up verse 17, let's all look at it. Verse 17. And you, yeah. What does it say? It puts them all together in custody for three days. Here's the $64,000 question that I would have loved to ask you most of this week. (laughs) Why? Why? Why does he put them in jail? He has absolutely no need to put them in jail. Does he? I mean, he could easily at that point have said, right, guys, here's the plan. Okay, I'm keeping Simeon. The rest of you go and get Benjamin. But he doesn't do it. He puts them in. What's he doing? Is he, is he just, as so many people suggest, is he just trying to get his own back? <laughs> is that it? Is it just vindictiveness? Is that what it is? Just, oh, I want them to have a little taste of the misery that I've been going through and that they put me in. Is that, I don't think that's what this is at all. Do you? Is it not this? He puts them in jail that they might stew on their sin. Isn't that it? Three days You think he knows that by these brothers being forced to come down into Egypt, he knows their conscience has been pricked. They've had to go Egypt of all places. What else does he know? He knows that the way he has dealt with them has made them confront their sin head on. So what does he do? He takes them and he throws them in jail for three long days that they might reflect on that, that they might reflect on what they have done and that they might repent. And each stop, what have we done? Come on, each stop, we have looked to a further biblical example. Where do we go here? We go to Jonah. And I think every single one of us in the room knows the story of Jonah. Will you permit me to get it wrong just for a second here? Let me get the story of Jonah wrong. Is this what happens? Jonah is rebellious. Jonah sins. He is swallowed by a big fish And immediately, the big fish vomits them out onto the land. Is that what happens? Is your minister getting the story of Jonah wrong? Is he? Yes. You know the story. Think about the story. Anticipating our Lord, yes, three long days. He's in the belly of that fish. Do you see it? See what God is doing, giving him that time to reflect on his rebellion, his wickedness, that Jonah in the end might sing songs of repentance even from the belly of the fish. And so perhaps you see what you and I should do, Christian friends, when we are laid low in our beds for a few days with a cold or with covid And perhaps you see what we should do when God lays us aside for a time. Perhaps when God gives us a period of unemployment, what should we do? We should recognize that sometimes God does that to give us a time to reflect on our wickedness. That sometimes in that period of inactivity, we should pause and prayerfully consider, why is that happening to me? Why this time of inactivity? Is it to reflect on my past sin? Is it to reflect on my present sin? 
Am I being given this time that I too might repent? And then the last thing, very briefly, can I recap them? Would you get them? To awaken us to our sin, God sometimes uses a crisis in our life. He sometimes speaks very severely to his people. He sometimes gives us time for reflection. And then lastly, listen, sometimes to awaken us to our sin, God treats us with great kindness. To awaken us to sin, God sometimes treats us with incredible kindness. Now, if I had longer, (laughs) we would most likely consider the nature of these men's contrition. I hope you noticed it. Read it this afternoon, verses, what is it, 21, 22. Do you notice that because of the way God has worked, they're beginning to confess their sin? Do you see what they say? The brothers say, we are guilty. That's from the brothers here. And they're beginning to speak to each other about their sin. They even go to the extent of recognizing that it is blood guiltiness that they are guilty of. Do you see what's going on there, the contrition? So if we had longer, we would look at that, but we don't. So as you and I, we pan the camera back right now to Joseph, I want to ask you, are you not sincerely moved by his reaction? I confess to being genuinely moved by his reaction. I think if you've gone through any troubles in relationships with family or friends, or surely you cannot help. If you've been wronged, you cannot help but be moved by this because he overhears them. And they're talking about what wrong they've done to him. You know, they're confessing their guilt, but it's a guilt against him. And he hears it. And what happens? But he just breaks down and he's crying and he's weeping. But what does he go on to do? I don't want you to think I'm being flippant. Stick with me. I'm not being flippant. But as he weeps, he acts like a granny. I'm not being flippant. Stick with me. He acts like a grandmother. Because what did grannies love to do? If you're a granny in here, you know what they love to do. The kids come over, the grandkids come over to play. They have a great day with a granny. It's all fun. The granny's so tired at the end of it. But what does the granny do so often? The grandmother, she'll sneak some sweets, some Haribo. She'll sweet sneak them in a bag to be discovered later on. Isn't that right? The grandmother, it's always a fiver as well. There's a fiver kicking about somewhere, isn't there? There's a fiver and they'll sneak the little fiver into the pocket so that the kids discover this later on. And isn't that what Joseph does? Isn't it delightful? Isn't that what Joseph does here? Because they've come for grain and they get the grain, but what is it? He sneaks the money that they paid for this grain back into the bag so that the brothers will discover it and discover it later on. And this leads us, friends, to the most important phrase in all of this chapter. So all of you, if you have scripture there, look at verse 28. And, and let's put it up on the screen. It is the most important thing here. So you've got the idea they're traveling back, the brothers, <laughs> scratching their heads thinking, what just happened to us? 
and they open their bags and they find the money. Some of the money. And what do they say? Do you read it with me? They say, what is this? Look at the last bit there. What is this that God has done to us? Did you see the significance of this? Do you see what's happening? This is the first time that any of these brothers have mentioned the name of God anywhere in the storyline of Joseph. Do you see what's happening? They've opened the bag and this kindness here, this benevolence has shaken them and has awakened their consciences. As they see this kindness, they recognize God's hand is in this. They look at this kindness and they feel the weight of their unworthiness as they look at this and and the contrition grows in their hearts. And yeah, oh, what a lesson for us as Christians. All of us as Christians, every one of us would say, God has been so kind to me. And there are seasons of our, our lives where the kindness is just breathtaking. Isn't it mind-blowing? Kindness. But what response should that evoke from you? Like gratitude, you say? Absolutely, we should be grateful. But do you want to see what the kindness of God is there to do? It should also drive us to our knees. Confession of our sin. We should feel the weight of our unworthiness. The Apostle Paul in Romans 2, listen to this. Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So there is a lesson for the Christian. But I end by speaking to you if you this morning are not yet trusting, resting by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to say to you, if you're not a Christian, what I've said to you before, listen, you are so blessed. Like you might not recognize it, but every day that you are on this earth, God is showering you with blessings. The very breath you are taking just now is a gift from God. The health you enjoy, your family, your work, every bit of it is a blessing from Almighty God. So surely you see here what that kindness from God should evoke in your life. It should see you fall to your knees in recognition that you are part of the motorbike gang. Really, the kindness of God, all that you enjoy, should drive you to your knees in recognition. You, like me, you are a sinner. You are a rebellion against God. And where do we go? Where do we go for the last and final biblical example of this that kindness should evoke contrition we go straight to Calvary don't we don't we go there because what kindness from God to yes evoke contrition but actually to win salvation what has happened that God has given the greatest kindness right God has given his only son, his beloved son. He has given him that Christ Jesus willingly has stood where you should stand and borne the penalty for your sin. I ask, even today, is God awakening your conscience? And run, flee to Jesus Christ, go to him, cry out like the brothers. We are guilty. 
I am guilty, O Lord, my God. Cry to Jesus Christ and he will save you from the condemnation your sin deserves. What kindness we see in Christ. What grace. Let's pray. We, O God, we confess how seldom, even as your people, we contemplate our sin. And we confess, Lord, so rarely do we pray in true confession, in contrition. How seldom is there great repentance in our hearts. But Lord God, we thank you that you are active to awaken us, to awaken our conscience. And more, we are thankful that you have dealt with our sin. You have paid our penalty and punishment. We praise you for Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. And we're going to uh, close our time of morning worship this morning. We're going to sing of the glory and the grace in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in praise. And we're going to sing uh, the song, Christ Alone, Cornerstone. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Friends, if you're able, let's stand together. Let's sing praise to the Lord our God.